Ryan. Hello, Rachel. How are you? Emotional. Oh. Very emotional. It's a it's a time of day and month and year and life in which I have to juggle two very important things in my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My love for weirdo Centauri politics and my hatred for Byron. <laughs> Both are in the air right now. <laughs> and it is a tumultuous time because, you know, we'll get into the discussion more so in the episode, but man, oh man, my mind is just swirling with so many thoughts and emotions. How about yourself? How are you doing? Okay. Just okay? Yeah. Rachel likes to keep it short and sweet and to the point, and that's why you're going to deliver us all of the information we need to know about the podcast, short and sweet to the point, aren't you? Yeah. We're Yum Yum Podcast. Ryan will make me explain where that name comes from in a little while. Uh, This particular episode is part of our coverage of Babylon 5, we are re-watching the show, which means spoilers. Where we re-watching it, revisiting it, and reviewing it. Where ah ah ah, the great Indian film. We are that film. Have we won an Oscar? No, but you know who won an Oscar? Michelle Yeoh, who was in Star Trek Discovery, a series we used to cover, and that inspired the name Yum Yum. That's right. She was in the yum-yum scene, but she did not utter the words yum-yum. But those words were uttered. We were inspired. We bring it with us everywhere we go. We name the podcast after it. But we are big science fiction TV fans. But we're just, we're also fans of TV. Do you think one day, Rachel, on this podcast, we will ever cover a series that is not science fiction? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Because the original plan was after we did Star Trek Discovery was to do Desperate Housewives. And as someone who's seen Desperate Housewives, I can giggle because you you think it's not science fiction. I know for a fact it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a joke. There comes a point in that series, spoiler alert for that series. I know there's a time there's jump. There's a time jump and they have to, because it was set in the modern day, they have to time jump and then make up future technology <laughs> to make it viable that we have gone to the future. So that's you very funny. You have mentioned this before. It's only subtle, but it is very funny. No one mentions that other than me, but we are not alone to talk well, about. Well, you're not listening to Desperate Housewife podcasts. No, I'm not. You're correct. But I am listening to Babylon 5 podcasts and to the point in which we bring on guests that are from other Babylon 5 podcasts. We're joined by one today, someone who is one of the many hosts of Grade 17 podcast. Yes, there's a podcast that celebrates the goofiness of Babylon 5. We celebrate the goofiness of Star Trek Discovery by naming ourselves after an infamous moment, while Blake over here, you celebrate the infamy that is Grade 17 and how it was missing. How are you doing, Blake? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm excited. So, so excited. And I mean, we've got we've got a, a juicy one to chew in today with Babylon 5, but uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell our listeners, or as we call them, yumlings, uh, about yourself and your podcast and what you guys do. Sure. So, as Ryan said, my name is Blake. I am one of the many hosts of Grey 17, which 
yes, we did embrace that Gray 17 was missing. And it was kind of funny when we pulled our cast together and we sent out the message about it. One of our newbies actually thought we were trying to get them to use a new messaging service. Hmm. They, they did not realize what we were getting them into, and I still don't think they have forgiven us. But I am a big sci-fi fan of uh, shows Star Trek, of uh, going back into Sequest DSV, Battlestar Galactica, uh, all sorts of sci-fi, both books and movies and television. And the chance to go through Babylon 5 with a group of my friends, both those of us who have seen the show many, many times, and introducing new friends who maybe aren't all into sci-fi into the show as well has been quite the journey for us. Uh, we do a review. We watch each episode. Uh, we do it weekly, uh, except for uh, War Without End. We did that as a one-parter, but generally we watch week to week just the way you would have uh, when the show first aired. And we get our newbies' thoughts, impressions, and then we make fun of them relentlessly beyond the rim and gaslight uh, what they think they have seen or heard. Over the last two days, each of you has been followed by one of my people. They have scanned every thought, every secret, every hidden thing you would not want to know. We are up to episode nine in the Kingdom of the Blind. And we, we read JMS's descriptions provided to us through the DVD brochures. We have no evidence to say he did not write these. He had his fingers in all of the pies when it comes to writing. So who who says that he didn't pen these great descriptions? I don't hear him saying it. So fact is, there's a, there's a great percentage that it is him responsible. What did he say? The telepaths secretly mind scan alliance leaders then threaten to reveal what they found if their demand for a homeworld is not met. Malari has a brush with death on his Centauri Prime homeworld. Oh, what a way to go through in the kingdom of the blind. Now, a little game we like to play is guessing or agreeing, coming to an agreement perhaps, or we make a case for who in this episode could have said yum yum if given the opportunity, if JMS was brave enough to make a character lick their lips, throw their hair back and say yum yum, who could it have been? Now, Blake, I haven't asked you, are you familiar with the yum yum moment from Star Trek Discovery? Are you a disco head? I I am familiar with that moment. As soon as I saw the name of your podcast, I'm like, they did it, didn't they? (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy, did we. Oh boy, did we. Hey, fun fact for you, Blake. Did you know that Michelle Yeoh won an Oscar literally as soon as she stopped doing Star Trek Discovery? It's weird that that happened. It's almost like not doing that show gave her great roles to do. I don't know. It seems like maybe it's a coincidence. But since you're the guest, is there anyone in this episode that leapt out at you as the person who wanted to say yum yum but didn't get the opportunity? You know, the unnamed telepath was just ready to go start whooping ass. I I could have seen him, and I don't think they gave him a name in the script. I even looked at the notes, and all I saw was just named telepath. You know, I think I could have seen him go and do the uh, yum-yum moment. He, you know, Blake and I on the same wavelength, but I've got another telepath, which is the one that was in the lift 
behind all of the ambassadors with the long black hair and we see him walk into the brown sector and just give Byron a, a stare to communicate things are happening. That guy had such a demeanor behind him that it was screaming yum yum. And let's be realistic, the the Centauri minister, uh, the one that Londo has to deal with a lot during this episode, he's so mincing that he wants to say yum yum, but he knows he's, he's incapable of doing so. Rachel, anyone for you? I agree with the aggressive telepath pick, but I will also give an honorable mention to Jakar, because he is chowing down on that yogurt or whatever it is. Spoo. It's clearly Spoo. He loves Spoo. Yeah, but then he should be complaining that it's not like it's fresh Spoo. Well, that's for next episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, and also he did do the to the sexy Centauri yeah. lady. So mm-hmm. that in itself is a yum-yum action. Chakar brings the yum-yum. He's an easy pick. I just wanted to acknowledge his yum-yummy moments. In the Kingdom of the Blind is an episode that I have always enjoyed. The fifth season has a bit of a slow going to it. It's a it's a more methodical pace, a lot of slice of life stuff, a lot of gimmick episodes. Stark contrast to season four. Oh, 100% correct there. And this was the turning point for me in previous watch-throughs. And even now, there's just a... There's a there's a tone to this episode. There's a mood, but there's also a definite um, there's a definite pushing forward of the narrative when it comes to this. That the Byron stuff is actually going somewhere, while before it was this nebulous thing where you didn't know how to feel about him and what is this leading towards. Now we know. Now we have a sense. And the Londo stuff, of course. Enjoyable, fantastic, love the creepy palace intrigue, great to see Centauri nobles being weirdos again, and Jakar having to rebuff them and be the bigger man, and the regent is one of the best minor characters. So an episode that brings him back and he's all fucked up is obviously going to be one that I hold near and dear to my heart, and I often consider this to be one of the standout episodes of the fifth season. One that I would point to and say, come on, the fifth season isn't that bad. Look, there's In the Kingdom of the Blind. It's an episode that even handles Byron pretty well, which in itself is a statement that many people do not like to hear. Rachel, In the Kingdom of the Blind, where has this landed for you in the past? I have always enjoyed this episode. I like Jakar being the bodyguard. I think that that dynamic is really fun and they're playing it up a nice amount. And... I also, I don't hate the Byron stuff. I don't like it, but I don't hate it. So I have a lot of mixed thoughts on season five in general. Um, There's some good episodes in here. There's some bits and pieces that are good. Uh, Have you dived much into your show on kind of the origins and how season five came about? We have we have gotcha. talked about it, about how the season four was perceived at one time to be the end, so that they had to rush it, and then it was revealed, oh, we can go for fifth season on TNT, but that means 
some things are lost. Uh, shooting schedule is changed. The budget is slashed. We lose a cast member or two along the way, and of course, the story stuff has to be. Uh, altered. And also at one time, I don't think we've mentioned this, but at one time I think JMS did a scripting outline for season five and then lost it because a a very zealous cleaner at a hotel or something threw away his notes. So he had to start from scratch again. And the Byron arc, I do believe, was supposed to be three or four episodes, but instead is stretched to mm-hmm. 11 or 12. And even well, that is not a correct thing to say because Within these episodes, there's like three of them he's not in. So, you know, even then, you know, there's episodes of the early part of the season that don't have Byron involved, or even if he's involved, you wouldn't say it's a a major story component, but there are ones where it's very heavy. But that's kind of the background. So for you, you've had a, like with many, I feel, that kind of altered, like that kind of mixed reception with season five. I must admit, when I grew up, I didn't know any of this stuff. I did not know any of it. So I just watched the fifth season as like, this is the last season. And so I kind of took it at that face value. But obviously some concerns, like Lockley is a presence that exists that I did not care for. And Byron is a presence that exists that I have not cared for in the past either. And now on our watch through, I think Lockley is a far more interesting character and a lot more merit. But Byron... He's a whole kettle of fish, but tell us a bit more about your experiences with the fifth season and with this episode. Well, the main issue with season five and TNT in specifically is TNT up to this point was primarily known for showing um, wrestling, professional wrestling. And they wanted to change their demographic. That's why they pulled in um, picking up Babylon five after it had been after the collapse of uh, PTN to put it on network which made no sense to anybody, by the way. We had Sci-Fi Channel. We had other networks that would have been a much better fit, but somehow TNT got this. And it was a lot of their studio notes. They kept trying to interfere with the production uh, to try to tweak what they wanted for the demographic, what they thought was needed. So I think that's where you really get that pushback, and it shows in Season 5 where you get these bits and pieces show up and a lot of the disjointedness of some of the season that shows uh, through the writing. And you can definitely tell some characters like Lockley for me, I always felt was kind of a poor replacement for what role Ivanova should have had, um, mm-hmm. had, had she continued through the series through season five. But again, I think there's some good episodes in there. I, I do like this one. Um, not so much on the Byron pieces. I think you'll hear if you listen to our show, we make fun of Byron quite a bit. Um, so totally not a fan of the Byron piece. I think that the resolution to the telepath conflict could have been done, um, with Lita. You could have brought in additional characters, but I don't think you needed to bring in this almost, uh, messianic cult-like Byron figure of this telepath movement to do that. It's interesting because from what I can gather, he was always supposed to come in at some point from what I've can like the fact that there was originally he was just supposed to be a three arc thing and and there is something and I don't know if you feel similar but there is something deliberate in his construction because if if Ivanova was here from what I from what little I know she was supposed to go through this arc not Lita and that would make sense because Byron is very similar to Marcus where it's this long-haired handsome British guy who's got this inner turmoil, but he has this exterior that presents otherwise. And I've always been confused as to why, like with you, why do we need Byron when we already have Lita? 
But even then, it's like, uh, from what I can, from the little remnants I have been able to pick up over the years, again, I haven't done the deepest of dives, it always seems like Byron was intended to come in at some point, or some version of this character. And it's just very strange. It's very strange because with what we've get, at least in my eyes, and Rachel, you can expand upon this because we've talked about it, we kind of fall in the camp of there should be more Byron for him to make sense. But we don't want more of him because we don't like him. And it's just a tricky road to walk. Isn't that right, Rachel? Like with our viewing of season five, that's where it's landed. Yeah, yeah. It's just awkward in the way that it's implemented and presented. And it's just like, just either way, it feels like it could have been better than what we've given. While some telepaths from other worlds evolved naturally, the majority were created by the Vorlons through centuries of genetic manipulation. They created us so we could be used by the other worlds as weapons in their war against the shadows. That is all we are to them. Things to be used and thrown away. With this episode, it sets up what will be an ongoing story for the remainder of the season, which is the Interstellar Alliance is being attacked. The shipping lines uh, for all of these different races are being uh, targeted and destroyed, and it's not raiders, it's some outside force with a military precision to their attacks. And it is destabilizing everything. It is bringing in fear. It is bringing in paranoia. It is bringing in tension. And they open up the episode with this. They have our characters sitting around the desk talking about what they've learned and what they've gathered and how are they going to deal with this now, given that they have uh, a charter that they have to follow. They have all of this legislation that they've written for themselves in which they have to go through with this. And as an opening to an episode especially after uh, some some more uh, gimmicky ones in the past. Like, we just had Day of the Dead. We also had the Mac and Bow episode. Like, we've had a few fun-type ones. I like that, although this is characters sitting at a table talking about the bureaucracy of it all, that it really sets in stone this sense of tension and impending doom to everything. Because we also cut to these ships being destroyed and we get like gruesome imagery, we get corpses floating in space and you think possibly, oh, this will wrap up by the end of this episode, but instead this is going to be a constant throughout the season that's going to spin out of control and as someone revisiting it, I really like how this episode handles it too, where they just, they show us that it's a Centauri ship in the opening. Like, if you are aware of ship designs in this show, you know who it is before they tell you in the final act of the episode. Mm -hmm. And so when it cuts to Londo, everything about Londo's story has this underpinning dread to it because we are aware of things that none of the characters are aware of. And uh, for you, you, Blake, you're in season three right now of B5 and it is in that era where it's like it's all about the shadows it's all about the shadows it's all about earth and these grander wars and now you're being thrown into this fifth season in which all of that has been put away and now we're dealing with the fallout of it all and now we're having to see our characters go from wartime to uh, to di- like diplomat time to to peace times to trying to forge a new frontier, but 
there's outside problems. How do you feel about how this episode went about this and this this uh, terrorist shipping line issue going on? So that's one thing I did like with season five is it picks up with what the aftermath of the Shadow War is because it was said all along the Shadows had those that worked for them. And with the Shadows gone, obviously some of those people that worked for them, some of those races that were their minions were going to try to fill that vacuum somehow and become a force of their own. And you see that with the Drock taking place through season five. And ultimately, uh, you'll get to the we'll get to the movie called Arms and the spinoff Crusade, which will play a part. But I like the setup with that. And JMS did give away and show the Centauri ship at the beginning. But did he give it away really? I mean, you see that it's a Centauri ship. But what they don't get into is who's controlling them and who's calling the shots. Is this the actual Centauri government? Or do you have, which what comes in with the Drop Keeper, are these being done kind of off the books and behind the scenes, which they start alluding to through the episode? So I think it was a really interesting setup that, yeah, you see it's the Centauri ships, but you start to get enough questions in there, uh, such as when Lord Jono points out that, you know, the uh, the ships are classified. He can't know where they are. There's all this other information that's getting classified that you really start to ask questions of what's really going on. And we know that the Alliance is very unstable. It is a newborn. It's defining itself as it goes and to have this kind of challenge unsettles all of them because it sort of reflects the struggle that Byron's having of trying not to use violence to overcome these problems. The alliance is sticking to its new values and trying to rewrite the playbook because Sheridan can't hide this information, which is what he would have done a couple of seasons ago. He's very good at being a soldier and having to think with tactics in a military sense, but now he's having to play politician. And he does not like having to play by the rules that they have created for themselves. We we see that in this opening scene where uh, they, I think Delenn lays it out of, uh, we have to give this over in 24 hours, and Bruce Boxleitner has this expression of just disdain for having to do that. Because if it was up to Sheridan, they would just withhold this forever until they sort out the problem. Because that's what he's done in the past. He so wouldn't share the question until he had the answer. Yeah, that's what he's done in the past. We cut over to Centauri Prime, and Jakar and Londo are best friends. They're great friends. Jakar accepted being a bodyguard because he thought it would be really funny. Yeah, and he's having a lot of fun. He is there to be Londo's right hand, to be his protector. But the thing that is brought through in the performances that could squash any doubts is he genuinely cares about Londo. He actually is not just doing this because it would be funny or it would be cool to make all of the Centauri nobles squirm. He's legitimately there to protect Londo Malari. He values Londo's life and Londo's position within the Alliance now, which is not something that you expect when you go through the show for the first time. 
because it's like how can they overcome all of the trauma, all of the barriers between them to establish a close connection? And yet here we are. It makes me reflect back on the season four premiere where Jakar was talking about the great strength that Garibaldi had, which was to see the redemption and change of others. And that Garibaldi was willing to let go of some of the incidents of the past to see what Jakar was becoming now. And I feel like he is taking that from Garibaldi and applying it to one of his worst enemies, Londo, because he's seen him slowly become a better person and take forms of accountability. Londo's literally apologized to Jakar at this point. Uh, Blake, for you, I imagine Londo and Jakar are like the top, char- well, like some of the top characters in the in the show for you. So mm-hmm. I want to hear from from you what it's like to see these two in a drastically different place to where you are watching the show right now. And what do you think about this story in uh, in itself of these two hanging out with all of the Centauri nobles? So full disclosure, I, I have cheated on our show. I have actually watched forward, so I'm about halfway through season five uh, as it is. I watch forward so I know what not to say on our show. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I've consistently I commented on, I think Jakar is one of the greatest characters in this show and one of the best acted. Um, Andreas Katsoulis can command any scene, and actually this episode has one of my favorite bits from him. Um, that ranks right up there with some of the great scenes like him in the elevator with Londo and some of the speeches he's given. And it's when he's handed the whip and put in front of the person that whips him. And he says, you know, are, do you get angry at the hand or do you get angry at the heart that ordered the hand to do it? And gets the minister to basically admit that it's the heart. And then finally looks and goes, but we know the greatest weapon of all is the mouth. And, just that see Jakar can command any scene he's in and it's just fantastic um between the writing and the acting that the way it can be delivered and you see Londo there just smiling as he does it you know there's pride there in the friendship and in the relationship that Jakar doesn't take the bait of what the ministers are trying to do but he has a moment where he's worried he does. he's just like is he going to be the new Jakar or the old Jakar. And he is so proud of it when he's just like, you didn't take the bait. I think, and I think the audience goes on that journey too, because I think when you watch this fresh, because I had not watched season five in a while when I got here, but you know, when Jakar takes the whip and stands behind the guy for a minute and he just has this almost dead look on his face, even the audience just kind of has to sit there for a minute and go, is he actually going to do this, or is this going to be one of those moments? Turn the whip on, so yeah. maybe, maybe, maybe he's going to do it just once. Maybe he's going to whip himself. Maybe he's going to whip the minister. And a part of you wants him to because you think if it was yourself, would you do it? You probably, you probably would, right? Or at least you would consider it. I, I, I know that I may not have had the absolute dignity and grace that Jakar does in that moment, but that's what makes him one of the best characters in the show because we've seen him 
change. We've seen him grow and we've seen him have the struggles. In the past, even when he was on a more noble road, there were moments where he's he's dealing weapons and he's getting dust on the station and he's doing all of these nefarious things, even though he was on the road to being a better person. And so when you get to the final season and you have what is probably the most humiliating, degrading thing he's ever gone through, which was the whipping, he's faced with it again. He he has he has a completely different response to it than when he actually mm-hmm. went through it in season four. It's a perfect test for him. The hand has no choice but to do as it is told. It is the heart that carries the burden, and that heart is dead in both of us, Minister. It died with Cartesia, and it died in me soon after. One of the big things that's happening during all of this is Londo needs to see the regent. He needs to know what the fuck is happening because clearly there's mysterious stuff happening on Centauri Prime and they're rebuffing him. They're saying, no, 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 no. The regent's sick. You can't see him. I- I've talked to him personally and you can't see him. Uh, uh, go away. Go away to your to your, <laughs> to your your little room and just Very think this over. Very convenient. Very convenient. He's the prime minister. And he's being told no. And then he talks to, to Lord Jarno and Rachel. Jarno, he's here. He's in the house. He's one of Londo's old friends that we've never heard about before. But what is going on during this sequence here? What is being laid out? Verini appears to have gone insane. That's the main part of it, that they just don't see him, really. And when they do, he's acting very strangely. And then one time he was drunk and begged for death. It's weird because he he never used to drink. Yeah, like he cultivated sobriety as a vice. (laughs) I really liked that explanation from Londo because it's just like, yeah, it would be considered a vice in Centauri culture because I think back to... Season one, when V is just like, he's like, when Londo passes out drunk, it's just like, he's closer to the gods. Oh, I, I also thought of moments like that and how he says that he went against the cultural norms when it came to this, but he's still high ranking and now he's the fucking regent uh, because he was an outsider and Londo thought, oh, I can put this guy in charge. It will be fine. And now it's not fine. Very, very not fine. Lord Jarno, he is this jovial figure. He's constantly smiling. He's giving all of this uh, news and, and, and exposition. This is a this is a scene of dumping of information. But I think it's just told and paced in a way that is in like inherently engaging. And uh, Blake, for you, what did you think of, of just this scene in itself? Like what we learn about it, but also how it is uh, displayed in front of us. Because we've gone a long way since the early days of season one, in which a lot of talky exposition could be a bit of a mouthful. So, how did this all go for you? Yeah, I think this shows the evolution of JMS's writing. Things get a little more subtle not necessarily the heavy-handed exposition like season one had. And, you know, I, I think it works. It, it starts to spell out some of those pieces to start raising questions. There's a darkness over the palace, and that is told to us, but it's also shown visually in the episode. A lot of the scenes, both on Babylon 5 and in, in, in Centauri Prime, get darker as they go along. We descend, we go into the brown sector more, or we go further into the tunnels that lie within side of the Centauri Palace. And 
when you have a character like Lord Jarno coming in and saying, there's all of these discrepancies and I can't figure them out. And although it's quieter since the insane emperor used to be here, it's also stranger and and just more disturbing and darker. And it's there's no there's not one thing to put your finger on it. It's just an overall feeling. Yeah, they they shift the atmosphere of Centauri Prime, and it really does become unsettling. A large thrust of what makes this story and Londo, after a certain point, really compelling is. We know what's happening. We even know the end. Not just as people re-watching it, but people going through it the first time. You know that there's shadow minions on Centauri Prime. That You know that this is some kind of bigger conspiracy that will most likely make it so Centauri Prime falls, as we saw in the double-parter in Season 3 with Londo in the future with the monster on his neck, which Varini has. And so when you have all of these other characters figuring it out, it makes it... It just makes it so much more difficult because it's ever so clear that we have not avoided the bad future that lays ahead for some of the characters. Because you bring up the region and the darkness with the palace. Because if... You remember back when he became regent and he kind of had that goofy personality and talked about the curtains being pastel, right? Mm. And he brings that back up now when because the regent has that scene with Jono right before he gets thrown across the room and dies. And you've got the moment where the regent says, once upon a time, I would have thought pastels, but now everything's darker. It was a it was a foolish thought that. We could just improve it all with yeah. lovely colours, but now we're, the, we're beyond that. Or the fact that he hoped that they were stepping out of the shadows, but they're not. They're not stepping into the light as a people. The Centauri are trapped, and a large part of that is due to Londo's decisions. It has that moment with Lord Jarno going to his going to his room and the regent is there in the dark and my god that actor's performance uh Damien London's performance is is just mesmerizing and heartbreaking at the same time and Jarno treats him sweetly he treats him like this old man who's losing his faculties and he's just polite and and he's saying the right things and trying to escort him out, but he he's not able to hear what we are hearing from from Verini because again we have the context we know that there's something afoot, and so Verini with that great lilting voice of his saying, "If it was up to me, no one would hurt you." And Jarno obviously isn't thinking about anything deep in that statement, but for 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 myself as someone sitting at home watching it, it just makes me squirm in my seat because it's like, you don't have a choice. That means something bad is going to happen and that you can apply that to the entire situation. If it was up to him, none of these bad things would be happening. But you see, there is no choice. This is what it is and this is how it's going to happen. And this this one guy, this one lord is getting in the way, so we're going to have to dispatch him. And I I find it really interesting that the Drak make Verini go. 
Well, how much is it that they make him go and he wants to be there because he has this whole speech yeah. about how he wanted to see him one last time and he also wants mm-hmm. to see Londo because these were people who treated him fairly and yeah. nicely. So there's a there's a guilt to there, what will yes. happen to them. Yes. Uh, but I also feel like there must be an element from the drug of wanting Varini to witness their brutality to try and help keep him in line. Because we do see him try and do little acts of rebellion during this episode and he gets punished for it. I think it's been a character journey for one that shows up relatively minor but recurring. You've got the region who shows up where you've got the crazy emperor and you can almost understand given everything about Cartesia why someone serving in his court could be a little unstable at that point you know I think you would get it where this guy's using humor and kind of appearing to be a little bit close to a breakdown in some ways because I remember a few of the scenes that he was in and early in uh, season three and even four that he's almost got this manic personality about him in a way and you you can write that off as he's just nervous he's got Cartesia you never know what's going to happen but you you also know when Cartesia goes, there is the prophecy. Londo's going to become emperor, but you know he can't be made emperor yet. There's There's got to be more to it. They're not just going to throw Londo in as emperor at that point. So I think it fit having him become regent and serving through that role, and especially with that nervous personality. And I think you start to see that with the personality shifts when it comes into this season where he's regent, he's got the keeper, he's got the personality changes, he's drinking, he's appearing to be even odder than usual uh, to people. So I think it was a well-done character piece, personally. Oh, he was very much a person who used to have the mantra of, it will all work out in the end, it will all work out in the end, and now, in this story, we see that that has been broken for him. It won't work out. He is a broken man. This actor fucking nails this so well. This is like what I remember in season five. Like this level of tragedy is what makes me compelled to always watch the fifth season because it's a bittersweet season. It's not just a we ride off into the sunset and everything's happy-go-lucky. People get fucked over. People who probably don't deserve it too. And the people who deserve it get to win. Yeah. Bester gets to ride off in the sunset and just clap his hands and say, "Get back! We're getting back to work. Back home we go." Like, while someone like this guy, who even at the height of all of the evil in Centauri Court, he was like that one guy Londo could talk to that was aware of it as well. But they had so many limitations given to them, and now here he is as a victim of something that Londo helped to put in motion. I, I, I'm glad. We got there in time to save you, Malari. You know, you were the only one who treated me fairly when Cartagia was here. But he's still here, isn't he? His legacy. These fucking Centauri, they're all, like, different degrees of decadent freaks. Freaks. They're all freaks. I mean... Uh, For you, Blake, when it comes to all of these different alien races and how they're defined and how they're presented to us, uh, the Centauri always seem to stand out in my eyes because, again, we do get each guest star 
is almost like a different representation of the absolute decaying nature of this once great empire and these lunatics and these aristocrats and each one of them has like a new shading to it it's not like they're all like the klingons or the frangi where it's like once you've seen one of them you kind of get the gist of it i don't know if you feel similar in that way i I do and i think you hit it spot on with the centauri are the decaying empire and you've got these people who each have their own scheme and their own ploy on how they're going to restore the greatness of the empire, how they're going to uh, bring it back to what it used to be. And there's all of these scheming and machinations to try to make that happen. I don't know if you miss this, Blake. Do you miss that in the 90s especially, and I think in the 2000s as well, it was just a given that a lot of these side actors, like these, these guest actors' performances, would be elaborately hammy. I feel like in modern science fiction, you would never get the performances that you get at the Centauri Royal Court as often. Do you, do you feel similar or not? Oh, yeah, I agree. I, I think you see that a lot in this particular era of science fiction in general, uh, Babylon 5 and others, where you get these roles that are just cheesy and hammy, and they live it up and they go for it. And I agree. I don't think you would see that in the shows you have now. One reason being sci-fi has taken definitely a darker turn as of late. Uh, as far as the way it is set and the way it is portrayed, there's a little bit more of a a darker undercurrent to it where you don't really get the chance to get into these type of over-the-top, hammy-type characters. It's it's more like it's a special event if it does happen. Like, oh, Strange New Worlds has an over-the-top flamboyant pirate captain who wears like a Mm -hmm. leotard and it's like that's once in a blue moon disco's version of harry mudd disco's version of harry mudd but even he's violent and crazy and they're like a a homicidal maniac and but yet he was also kind of fun and campy but i i think there is more of a push for for that hence like people have talked about this but like disney nowadays really try and suppress the villains and their campiness and even their songs and it's like as somebody who grew up with the like the renaissance era of disney animation the villains were the best fucking part because they're hammy and cheesy and live it up and i think today especially we wouldn't get like a a jeffrey combs type actor in these series like you know jeffrey combs is over the top and hammy, and so we get him to play like 50 different roles in one franchise because he's so good at being this over the top presence in different ways. And I just don't think we get that as much. And I miss it. And I was just thinking about that when we had all of this because even when Londo goes down to the corridors and he's being chased and he's greeted by Vol, that character, that performance isn't that over the top in comparison to other Centauri, but when you look at it on its own in isolation, it's fucking ludicrous and absurd. He's got the hair and it's white and he's speaking in this certain accent and and then he throws a knife and it flips back and hits him because of a telekinetic alien over there. And I'm just looking at all of this going, this is fucking wild. Like, this is fucking wild. I wish a lot more, not just sci-fi shows, but like I wish a lot more shows would be embracing of being this theatrical and weird and 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 just elaborate and i just was delighting and just like even vol is this stuffy i'm the stuffy old racist (laughs) well i wonder how much of that because you mentioned earlier uh star trek discovery had michelle yo on her and how much of that is you look at shows now that are bringing in 
more established actors from the film and television world versus shows like Babylon five actually pulled a lot of their guest stars in from the theater world. They weren't big name television, or if they were, they had a lot more theater credits with them as well. And I wonder if that's part of it is this era amongst a lot of the shows were bringing in that more theatrical actor versus now the people they're bringing in to play these roles are more of the television and movie uh, background. Outside of Bruce Boxleitner in this cast, who's the movie star? It's like they've all they've all been in movies at some point, but a large majority of this cast were TV and theater people. Mm-hmm. And hence we get Peter Jurassic and Andreas Kotsoulis' performances, where they're over the top too. I mean, look, we're five seasons in, we're used to Londo and his accent and everything about him, but... If you're trying to sell this, like as you did with your podcast, right? If you try to sell this to new people, that can be very abrasive. It can be alluring and it can be entertaining, but for some people, they're like, oh, fuck this. The over-the-top like accent and the teeth and the hair and the spots and he's drunk all the time. But if you allow it, if you embrace it, it can really be rewarding. And you did say it. Michelle Yeoh is over-the-top in Discovery, but her character is treated in a very specific way that annoys me specifically. But I do think like things like Strange New Worlds is kind of leaning back into what B5 and Star Trek and other shows were doing back in the day. There's kind of cheesy good time while still making sure every now Would and then you to have a message... Camp? Yeah, camp or making sure to have a message as well as be a rip-roaring silly time. Because I think that's also a sacrifice is, oh, if we're going to be silly, we might as well not have a point to it. This episode has a point to make. The Centauri stuff is genuinely like well-constructed in terms of tone and atmosphere while still having these more outlandish uh, aspects to it. The, the 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 creepy alien with the red glowing eyes that has telekinetic abilities and it flips the knife around on the guy and it kills him and then it disappears. That's really like I find that very funny, but it's also something where it's like, oh no, that's not good. Like, oh no, there's creepy aliens, which I already knew because I've you know seen season four. I know that there's creepy aliens on Centauri Prime, but it's still like, oh there there there's one, and it did something weird, and then it left. <laughs> then it just left. It did the thing, and it went home. And Londo's so dumbfounded, he doesn't even have time to process if that even happened. Jakar comes back and is like, are you all right? He's like, I, yeah. I didn't get stabbed, so I guess I'm okay. And this sensation is embodied in the conversation with the regent. He has this conversation with the regent, and by the end of it, he's asked, well, what happened? He's like, I, I don't know. I, I fucking don't know what I just went through. And I love how this episode brings that really to the forefront when it comes to Londo's story of like, we know, but the characters, even when they're getting more information, it just brings up more confusion for them. And that is deliriously joyful to to just consume because, uh, as I said, I, I Londo's story specifically is a tragic one. And so... And very much also like a Greek tragedy in a lot of ways, where it's like, oh, it's just this slow train wreck that's unfolding and it's too late. You kind of set yourself in this motion and it's just there. Uh, Rachel, the regent, he gets to talk to him. Yeah, yeah, he does. (laughs) I love 
I love Varini and I love his hand gestures. Like when he, it's just his hand floating around the door frame. And he's like, come hither. <laughs> it's just this old man's hand over articulating. You know it's him just from how shaky you that hand know is. From the hand. And it's great. And then it's horrifying. Well, why is that horrifying for you? <laughs> because you have heard how disturbed Varini is, how he is not himself and that something has changed. And then you see him and you feel it and you feel sorry for him because, as you were talking about earlier, he is somebody who has genuinely tried to do the right thing and has just gotten completely fucked over by other people. He, this this performance is also the key to it all. He's flickering through all of these different mental states and emotions. He's, he's hard to pin down, but since he is so hard to pin down, it is ever so clear at the same time he how much of this is him talking on his own how much is this him talking through codes and and secret messaging and how much is it them making him say a thing or two and damien london you know they got him in to just be a guy who said some lines and then they got him in and he was funny and they thought he was really funny and then they made him a comedic relief and they had to rely on him to be able to pull something like this off years later like when they first got him did they know that he would be able to do this type of performance maybe not but they they put trust in a lot of these guest actors and that's what i've really come to appreciate about babylon 5 on on the rewatches is we always get enamored by the the main cast but it's often aided by also equally equally brilliant stunning and and surprising performances because you know, uh, with with Londo, for instance, the character is a surprise, like where he goes and what he becomes. But I think it's also like Peter Jurisic's performance is a surprise because he's so clearly the funny guy in the beginning. So then when you bring in these dramatic elements, there's a level of of appreciation that this this character, as well as the performer, can dig deep. And I think that applies to all of these, gu- like a lot of these guest stars, including this guy here who we relished in him being silly. When they cast this person originally, I mean, you have to wonder, did they have any idea where they were going to take this and if he would be able to pull this off? You can see the conflictedness in him as he's delivering these lines. It's like he's under control of under the control of this creature, but he's still also trying to give the warnings that he can give. And you kind of see what the pushing the boundaries and telling Londo go enjoy this while you can because you're not going to have this. You know, you're not going to be able to make the choices and do what you want. And just the delivery of it and having that scene between the two of them. You know, I also go back to the start of Babylon 5 and they kind of said right there at the very start, no one is who they appear to be. And I think we've seen that over five seasons with so many characters play out of there's the characters we were introduced to and the perceptions we had of them. And then how much those have changed over the course of the series, whether it be characters who were there from the beginning 
or characters we got introduced to over the way that didn't turn out necessarily the way we thought they would based on who we got introduced to. Why, I came to see you, Lord Jano. <laughs> Why else? Certainly not the decor. Once I would have thought, pastels for the curtains. But I think we're well beyond pastels now. Mm. No bright colors anymore. Just darkness. A character that has not gained a lot of love from many viewers is Byron. Do we do we need to talk much about this? Of course we do, because uh Blake's here. Blake Blake's here. Can we make Blake do it? Blake, tell us a bit about Byron. What's going on with the uh the Byron plot? Do we have to talk about Byron? Remember Byron, we have to. I tried not to, though. I, I really tried forgetting <laughs> about Byron. Damn. Dang it. Remember. <laughs> Leonard Nimoy voice, remember. Uh, so what's going on with Byron, Blake? So Byron's still kind of being a shitty character. I, I, I don't like Byron. I'm sorry. Um, so no, you've got Byron with his little group of telepaths and he's starting to ramp up the bit of demands, especially since uh, last episode, uh, Lita did the big reveal to Byron that uh, surprise, the telepaths were created by the Vorlons to more or less be used in their conflicts with the shadows. But that kind of didn't, well, I mean, obviously when you find that out, Byron decides that, well, they owe us, so he decides to start trying to capitalize on this. I think there's also some, a little bit of too much naive uh, naivete set into Byron, because he's thinking, oh, we're just going to go out and read the uh, ambassador's minds, and then they're going to give us what we want because, you know, we know their secrets, and they're just going to give in to us. You know, I don't think the character necessarily has a realistic expectation of what's going to happen when he starts trying to play this game. No. And and for me, I, that's, that's I think that's part of my problem with the character. I just don't think the writing and the consideration of what they wanted and how they went about it was fully thought out. Now, there could be a hundred reasons for why that is, and maybe um, JMS's original notes that got lost would have contained more about that or carried it a little differently but it just seems like it's the whole arc and background with byron to me just seems like it's half-assed and thrown in i'm gonna argue with you on this because although i'm not a huge byron fan i've never been a fan i've i've been trying as have you rachel to analyze byron go through it with a fine-tooth comb and get over the like the feelings that one gets because i when i watch this just casually i roll my eyes i don't really give byron the time of day and i feel very similar to you but i think when you pair it against sheridan who's also supposed to be at this point a leader of something bigger than himself Self, both of them are short-sighted. Both of them don't think things through very well. They're both inept at what they are doing. They're both naive in the way. And Byron, I think it makes a lot more sense because he was introduced as this figure who 
suddenly gained a group around him under this very ill-defined, we just want to be peaceful, and he never really thought through it a lot. And during the course of episodes, he has actually vocalized to Lita that he doesn't think he knows enough. Like, he's feeling worried about being in charge because he's inexperienced. He really hasn't lived that much of a life. Uh, One of the things that I, I wonder is lost because... The I personally think Robin Atkin Downs does a good good job with the performance. I have issues with the writing. I've always said I've liked Robin Atkin Downs' performance. It's the writing. But one of the things that I think makes it difficult is Robin Atkin Downs looks old in comparison to how old he was. And I think it would make more sense if he looked the age he is actually. So Robin Atkin Downs filmed this when he was 20 to 21 years old. But he looks like he's 36 years old in my eyes. I don't know if you feel the same, Blake, but like, mm-hmm. do you like, do you think like if we were made more explicitly aware that this is basically someone who's just finished being a teenager and they have to try and be in charge of a like a colony of telepaths, it would add up a bit more? Because I think it would. Like, I think a lot of his uh, shortcomings does add up to someone who's young and inexperienced and idealistic, but hasn't thought things through. And, and I agree. I think that would have made it make more sense if they would have portrayed the character in those terms. If you would have had this character who was you knew was younger, who could maybe then carry that a little differently. But that's not what we get. Exactly. That's not what we get. I feel like we do, but we don't. I think the biggest problem is we never, until this point, honestly, till this episode, get a clear idea of what Byron wants. He said that he wanted a homeworld when he rocked up in the first place. Yeah, but... But they didn't do anything to move towards that. It's not just being told about what he wants, but it's being demonstrated. In this episode, he is taking actions, whether they're correct or not. And it's not just he's taking actions. He has a very specific point of view that we could relate to. Like, in all fairness, he's right. Everything Byron says is correct. They are fucked over. They are basically a a, a subspecies who have been enslaved and lived this horrible life. They've been sacrificed in multiple wars and gained nothing in return. They deserve civil rights. They deserve help from the Interstellar Alliance. Everything he is asking for is completely valid. But up until this point, he has been this very vague, cult-like figure and so when we get to this this moment, I, I finally rejoice because it's like, oh, I can connect with the character. Outside of this episode, I haven't been able to connect with the character all that much because there's always been this looming villainous quality to him without it actually ever being solidified. Byron takes a turn in the episode because he manipulates his way in to the chambers, and then he extorts them. He goes up to Garibaldi, who has done nothing but good for the telepaths. Like, he's provided them work, he's provided them opportunities, even though Garibaldi despises telepaths and doesn't trust them. He has still done this, and so Byron takes a a pivotal turn. He reads his mind, and and he cons his way in there. He, he, He uses Garibaldi. 
And I I like, like, I, you know, it's a weird thing because I don't care for Byron as a character, but I actually really like the Byron plot in this episode. Like, in this episode, I think it's been fairly well handled. Like, you see him struggling with wanting to do the good thing, but also his emotions are overcoming him because he's fucking pissed off. You're telling me I could have been normal? You're telling me I could have not, insu- like, suffered all of these injustices because of some aliens? You're telling me that this all could have been avoided? Fuck that, I'm angry. But also he wants to try and be rational. And he knows that there is no legitimate way to get the help he wants. So why not use the gifts that have been bestowed upon them? The mind powers, because wouldn't you? And I just, you know. It's the weapon that they have. It's the weapon they were made to be. And so he 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 just pulls the wool over Garibaldi's eyes, which of course pisses Garibaldi off because he doesn't trust telepaths and every time he does, every time he gives them an inch, he gets screwed over in some way, shape or form and it's just like this this building blocks of just Garibaldi's frustrations and we saw all of that really like screw him over in season four so to have this happen again, he just, Garibaldi is just kicking stuff, he's saying fucking hell, I shouldn't have trusted them, I should have that tattooed on my eyelids. Yep. He's just, he's, he's livid. But Blake, By- Byron, he has a proposal. He says that he's there to help them with this shipping line issue, but in fact, he has his own little plan that he wants to do. So what does he, what does he uh, put forward to everyone? What does he put, for- put forward and how does he want them to abide by it? Pretty much he puts forward blackmail, I think is the bottom line. He basically goes before the council and says, hey, we've... Uh, We've been following you around and we've picked up on your secrets and your thoughts and here's a list of useless worlds you have. We want one. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that, you know, he knows there's no other way to get this. Does he really, though? I mean, has he actually, and again, it's been a bit since I've dived into season five, but I know he showed up saying he wanted a world for telepaths. But at one point there was talks about, you know, getting money to buy a world. There was all these different ideas. I don't think we've actually seen him sit down and try to negotiate with Sheridan or anyone else about a homeworld. We just saw him jump straight into, hey, let's go read a bunch of people's thoughts and try to blackmail them for one. We've talked about this too. It's been an issue that they are prejudiced against mundanes. That's the interesting wrinkle is they need the help, but they don't want it from them. But the irony is they've been seeking asylum on Babylon 5. Lockley, a character who did not want them here, has been the one pulling strings to make sure that they stay and not get taken away by the Psycor. Who, by the way, Lockley should be in this episode. By the way, she she they have a line where it's like Lockley said this. No, no, no. Fucking have Lockley in the episode. I know that there was she contract sent issues Zach and instead. I know that there's issues always in this show with like contracts and a lot of time for what episodes you have the characters and actors in, but this is just one of those where it's like, really? We need Lockley to voice her opinions here, but don't worry, she'll be back next week. She'll and- get her I told you so moment. But here's the thing. But you, he frames it like this, though. He gives them all of this, all of this documentation of the proof that the Vorlons created telepaths, and then he references the fact that they've been weapons in wars for these races, that they have sacrificed themselves willingly and unwillingly as well. Like they didn't know at times. And they have received nothing. And Byron, in all fairness, Blake, he is there 
as a political refugee. And so I agree, though. Like, I wish there were scenes where there were more attempts of him trying to form that. But honestly, it's Garibaldi tries to form a relationship with the telepaths, but he wants them to be spies, which, again, riles them up because they don't want to be weapons for mundanes, mm-hmm. but that's what they are. And he says their weapon is information, so let's fucking use that against them because that's what they've been taught. Byron's from the Psycor. He's not a diplomat. They're afraid of us right now. We have to stay here quietly, peacefully. They have to see we're not acting against them. And if they come after us, we'll need all the supplies we can get. They won't. If we stay together and do nothing to break the laws, security will have to protect us. If we split up, anything can happen. Then we'll go after them. No. That would only further complicate the situation. Before he reveals that they've blackmailed them, he says, like, we want a colony, we want a homeworld. You guys have a million different planets up for grabs. Give us this homeworld. And how does Sheridan react? No. He's just like, that's not possible. And it's just like, is it? Like, Is it impossible? Yeah. It doesn't feel impossible. It feels expensive and inconvenient, but that's not the same thing as impossible. One of my favorite things about the fifth season, and this is why I do appreciate the Byron story in a way, is I really love how Sheridan is shown to have these shortcomings and these failures and these missteps in command and leadership because he was able to beat the the wars because he was a soldier. He was great at fighting and using these dirty tactics. Like, he'll nuke the enemy or he'll use telepaths to rip through ships if need be. He's good at that. lure people in with a distress signal. And he's never been the most skilled politician or ambassador or negotiator. He would often push that onto Ivanova because he he has no interest. Because he has no interest in it. And so when he is given a a, a political crisis, which is, Byron says this, we're slaves, help us. Sheridan, our hero, this is what I love, Blake, about season five. Sheridan, our hero, says no. Fuck you. (laughs) He says no. (laughs) We want a planet and civil rights. And Sheridan says that's impossible. No. <laughs> like, what's like in, in all honesty, Blake, like in this moment, what what argument does Sheridan have to stand on other than just saying he doesn't want to? <laughs> like, this is before they reveal that they've blackmailed them and everything. Yeah, he doesn't really have a leg to stand on there. I mean, the only thing that he could potentially argue is, hey, you're not here to talk about what you told us, but that's a bullshit excuse. So yeah, he's got nothing here to to do that on. And the, he just gets madder and uh, he has to calm himself down during the episode. But Byron does say, we followed you around. We're going to blackmail you and you're going to have to accept that. And this is the this is the, the story bit that I hate, Blake. And I, I'm wondering if you had this in your notes, too. He had a plan, at least. Byron laid out his plan. We had a whole scene where he's like, is everyone here? Okay, this is what we're going to do. And then we cut away and we can intuit what we go. No. So the plan has happened. They've basically committed an act of, uh, you know, espionage against all of the alien races in the galaxy. He's sitting there and this group are saying, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some people we sent out for um, supplies. 
And it's like, wouldn't you get the supplies before Byron went to the meeting? You know that this is happening. And they're like, no, it should be fine. Why would anyone be mad at us? Like, they're planning to barricade themselves up. Did they not think that... Did they not think that far ahead? Well, the barricading comes once they know that they're going to get their skulls crushed in by the police. They thought that they will sit it out and wait for the call to come. Like that that naive optimism that Blake was going through before. But this moment here is where I go, I can't blame Byron for any shortcomings he's made because he's fucking colony are stupid. (laughs) Like, throw Byron a bone, Blake. Like... Was that that's not his fault? Like that, that that moment was just one of those like, what the fuck are these stupid hippies thinking? If he was a better leader, <laughs> no, no, I'm going to defend know, him. I, he did I'm the best gonna, he could. You know, I'm going to defend here a little bit too, just because of an example out of the real world here. Just you know, so I live in the Western U.S. and there was several years ago a group of militants that took over a federal wildlife reserve. Uh, in the state in which I live. And it was kind of funny because right after they did it and they showed up and started saying, we're going to do all this stuff, they started putting out calls for people to bring them snacks and bottled water and drinks because they didn't think far enough ahead that when they took over the land, they couldn't just run to Safeway in town, (laughs) um, the local grocery store, and get supplies. So they started having to talk to supporters to get supplies brought in for their little standoff. So I I could kind of see it uh, as comical as it may be in the planning of you didn't think this through. Yeah, yeah, and that's why honestly I know we we don't see eye to eye on this, but I actually kind of like these type of fuck ups in Byron's. Oh group. yeah, it's very organic and natural, especially when you do highlight his age and. Sheridan's on the opposite end where he's got all the power. He could make decisions to make this go away if he really wanted to. He's gotten himself out of hotter water than this. Like He's had to fight against his own people, but again, he's not as skilled at this side of his job like Sinclair was. Sinclair would never have handled it like this. But that's the difference between the two characters. Sheridan hates this side of his job, and yet it's what he is. It's one of my favorite things about The Road Home is the like the pitch-perfect writing of Sheridan being a little piss baby about being the president. And it's, it is evident here. He has this whole speech about, look, they did it the inconvenient way, which is what? the Earth president said to him about his rebellion against Earth. You did it in the inconvenient way. And he he almost doesn't see the irony of it. it Delenn has to step in. And Delenn is the one who who like puts it into like puts it all down for them. The telepaths have done have been through this. Wouldn't you feel this way? And Sheridan again, this is the hero of our show, says, look, 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 I grant you like idealistically speaking it makes sense but i don't want to i don't want to work towards that i don't want to deal with this <laughs> i don't want i don't want to deal with this mess this is what i love about jms he has this level of um i guess pessimism in there where our lead hero our, our character the man who has saved the galaxy 10 times over and now is basically the president of the universe has this one issue that could easily be fixed, and he says, ah, but I don't really want to. You know what would be easier? 
Hey, Zach, uh, I'm removing my protection from them. You and the boys, you can sort it out real good. Because, you know, Blake, it always works out well when... Choosing violence. When the state government puts down police brutality to solve a civil rights crisis. It It always lands well on the side of history. Oh, yeah. Makes for a great history. Blake, Byron, anything else you want to say about this, or are you done with it? Remember Byron. Remember Byron, and Lita loves him. She's going to stay in there. They had sex again. Zach loves her too. Yeah. And he asks her to leave, which is very sad and embarrassing for Zach. In a good way. Like, I think it's really well written. It makes sense for his character and where he's at in his relationship with her. But it is very, like, he's supposed to be the tough guy. And he shows vulnerability in this moment where he's supposed to be raining hellfire down upon these people. And he's like, the microphone, is it on? (laughs) Yeah. Can you leave? I just like that Zach can't catch a fucking break. He just can never get it right. Like, his uniform doesn't fit. He gets shitty pizza. His relationship with Lita just can't happen. And then this, it's like... Ah, I gotta bash their heads in, and he can't even come across as like a genuinely intimidating opponent to them. Even Zach, for the two scenes he gets, is just pitch perfectly written. Rachel, mm-hmm. it's your favorite part of the show. Spotlight, where we talk about an actor or actress that appeared in the given episode, go over their performance, anything we've seen them in, and pieces of trivia we may have found out along the way. And what actor are we talking about and who did they play we are discussing Lojano and this actor oh you're getting emotional thinking about him huh he's is it because his voice is too sexy so it's ian ian ogilvy i believe is how you pronounce it and i love him I love him in this. He's just having fun. He's he's constantly smiling and he has a lot of mouth mouth movements and he he's very he knows how to speak this this writing. Like JMS JMS has a very specific style to his writing and a rhythm to it and this guy's a theater actor. This guy's been on TV for a while. He does some of the classic like the Avengers and stuff. So he knows how to say this dialogue and he makes a character that is purely exposition come across as a real person. Someone that's lived a life outside of the two scenes we and see you him. believe it. Jakarwin, he's just like, I looked in his eyes and I did not see a man that wanted to die. And it's just like, yeah. No, that no, he didn't give that. I yeah, I really don't believe this. I saw him get murdered, but I still, I still, I still believe Jakar. Blake, Ian Ogilvy here is playing what is arguably one of the very few, if only, uh, nice and normal Centauri we meet in the show. He is not playing like an over-the-top weird freak of the court. He is playing what seems like a very professional man. So what do you think of the performance? And have you seen this actor in anything in particular? So I thought the performance was was okay, because you're right. This is not you know one of the over-the-top Centauri that's out for world or empire domination or scheming up something or 
you know, so the, the other Centauri we've seen have largely been that over-the-top personality. So I kind of liked seeing a little bit more restrained. But I think he played it in a way that you could still see the lightheartedness of it. He always had that smile, that kind of jovial personality. So you could see it underlying there, but it wasn't front and center like it has been with so many other Centauri. As far as have I seen him in anything else before? I'm sure I have because I've I've looked at his uh page on imdb and there's a lot of shows he's been in that i have watched but where i recognize him from is actually some of his voice work uh so unlike some of the other people on our podcast i happen to be a fan of the james bond uh, both books and movies but they did a series of radio dramas of uh radio plays based on fleming's books and he's been in three of them moonraker thunderball and goldfinger which uh, two of those happen to be a couple of my favorite Bond movies. Which so who was he in then? Was he Bond? Uh, he did not do Bond. Um, he played relatively minor place pieces in them. Uh, Moonraker. Um, he was one of the broadcasters. I think Goldfinger was his biggest one. Um, he played Colonel Smithers in Goldfinger. He has a connection with uh, James Bond in another way too, which is Roger Moore was the lead of a TV series called The Saints, mm-hmm. which arguably helped get him the role of James Bond, just like how Remington Steele helped get Pierce Brosnan the role of James Bond, you know, the spy show on the TV. Yeah. And after Roger Moore left The Saints, they continued on with it, and then they made a spin-off series later, or like a revival series called The Return of the Saint, in which Ian replaced Roger Moore. He was seen as dashing and handsome and just that suave you know, 60s, 70s spy type to take up the mantle from Roger Moore. And of course, people love The Saint because of Roger Moore, but there are people out there who appreciate Ian's work on the series as well. And so I just thought it would be great to to piggyback off of your James Bond commentary there because he's also had connections in, in that other way of basically filling up the shoes of a guy who went on to become the... What the most recurring James Bond? He was in the most James Bond films, mm-hmm. right? So, yes. and arguably the figure that people think of for James Bond, it's all, it's always been Sean Connery or Roger Moore. It's always those two that people juggle between. I'm not going to start that debate now. We don't have time for who is the best Bond debates because you know we gotta we gotta wrap our boy Dalton, and there's just not enough time. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> Come on, his film had Rick Mail in it. No, oh, no sorry, um, Rowan Atkinson in it. Yeah, and there freak. were a couple of times where his name was thrown around for casting of James Bond. Oh, Ian? Yeah. That makes sense. You cannot compare with your masterpiece, General Krylenko. The middle of the day, in a busy street in Cairo. General Krylenko. Yes, that one did present some difficulties. A very narrow field of fire, a high building, and only a five-second view of the target. I was shocked. I may, I may not have seen it, but he hasn't. He hasn't done Doctor Who. No, he was almost in uh, an episode of Doctor Who. I think in like the, I want to say seventies. Tom Baker run probably. Yeah, in one of the Dalek episodes. It's in his trivia, but I'm blanking. On the episode, yeah, but he almost got that, but didn't. 
that's like most of his trivia points is like he was considered for this role, but he didn't get it. But for you, is there any shows or movies he's popped up in and you're like, oh, it's that guy? Well, I'll I'll save one of them for you, um, but I will bring up Death Becomes Her. He's in it and he, he had a quote in an interview that I read where he's just like, yeah, like I don't usually play Euro Trash, so it was fun. You got to work with Meryl Streep in in Death Becomes Her. He is the guy who gives her the information to look up Isabella Rossellini and thus get the cure for you know to get immortality basically and kick off the plot. He is the guy that gives her the ability to do that, and he is fucking wild. He has no beard in that, so he looks completely different. He has this twitching eye thing. He's very funny. I love Death Becomes Her. It's one of my favorite like go-to comfort movies. It's one that you used to watch all the time on TV growing up, and so I'm a fan of that. But Rachel, he was in your favorite show, Diagnosis Murder. And he was also in Murder, She Wrote. That's five different people. Five different people. He was in the season, I do believe, or near the season that JMS wrote for, but he was not in any JMS written episodes. If you do have the time and look up a lot of actors that appear in Babylon 5, most, like a great percentage of them do come from Murder, She Wrote, or they were involved in Murder, She Wrote at one time because JMS worked on that series, as did some of the other people behind the scenes. And he got help with casting from people who worked on Murder, She Wrote, if I remember correctly. So it's like, oh, they went, oh, we we know this person, we know this person, they'll work for this. When he did Babylon 5, he was doing a lot of guest star appearances on television. Murder, She Wrote, Murphy Brown, Baywatch, JAG, Diagnosis, Murder, Walker, Texas Ranger, The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., even before he went to America, he was doing that in, in the UK with the two Ronnies and uh, I, Claudius, he was in a few episodes of, which, again, if you haven't seen I, Claudius, give it a watch. It's one of the greatest shows ever. Uh, he used to do that. He was doing that for a while. And when he did Death Becomes Her, I read a quote where he was talking about how he was he was just so comfortable doing that. So when he went back to a movie set, he wasn't expecting that type of attitude again. And that, you know, working with Meryl Streep, she was just so gracious. He asked, can I touch your hair? And she says, this is your scene, Ian. Do whatever you want with me. And just he he still talks about that with a great fondness of how about how in the TV world, you're, you're coming in for a guest spot and it's very machine-like. You know, you just shuffled in and shuffled out and you don't really get to have any of those connections as much. And that, but when he worked on that movie set, it kind of brought back that even if you're in a one or two scene thing, there is that opportunity given more, which is a great piece of insight uh, to, to the acting world experience. But he was in The Avengers, as mentioned. He was in Witchfinder General because, of course, this, this actor is from the UK. He started out over there, moved over to America and started, and now he's naturalized over there. He's still there. You can actually find on YouTube several lengthy interviews with him that have come out this year. People are talking to him currently because he's still working. He's still at it. And I just find that really interesting because, in my view, he's always Lord Jarno, like that one cool like, average, level-headed Centauri guy. Now, Blake, is there anything about this actor that you found in your travels, any other roles or interesting pieces of trivia or anything specific about the performance you want to highlight? 
Not off the top of my head. Like I said, the part that stuck out to me was the, his part with the Bond uh, audio drums. He also did, because um, I was reading a couple other things, in addition to the radio plays, he did some of the uh, books to tape of Fleming's original books as well. Oh, wow. So I'm sure I've heard some of those too, because at, at one time I did listen to some of the uh, Fleming books on tapes before I decided that I really hate listening to books on tape. <laughs> Wow, that I mean, that's a that's a fair thing. I knew Michael Sheen, the the the, the well beloved actor, because he used to do nothing but like British audiobooks and stuff, like on tape as well. So it's kind of funny when you get get to know some voices and actors. And B B Five has had quite a few of those vocal people, like Mister Lance in mm-hmm. season two. He read Game of Thrones. He did all of the Game of Thrones books, and so people know him for that voice. A lot of great voices in B Five. So an interesting thing is he's a writer. He does plays and children's books, but recently I, I discovered that he's been writing a lot of film reviews for a certain place, and I think it was like 2020, they compiled all of his film reviews into like a, a compendium, a book that you can read, and they're for, supposed to be humorous and light and come at it from a, perspe- a perspective of somebody who's been in the industry, so can talk about it from the inside as well as seeing it from the outside. And I haven't had a chance to read any of those, but I, I'm, I'm always interested. I, I like reading reviews and watching reviews and stuff, so and obviously making them too, but uh, I'm interested in that. But, Rachel, what's his big connection to a cast member in V5? Because I thought Blake would have seen this stumble across the desk, but he has a specific connection to somebody. He has a connection to Bruce. And how so, Rachel? (laughs) I'm resisting making a really crude remark. Don't be crude to Bruce Boxleitner. I was going to say, go for it. Yeah, go for it. No, because it's not to Bruce, it's to one of his ex-wives, and I don't think she deserves that, even if he does. Wow. So you're giving the giving the game away a bit. Yeah. So he's married to one of Bruce's ex-wives. That is correct. Ian is married to one of Bruce Boxleitner's previous wives. That wife... After the marriage like deteriorated and they separated between her and Bruce, she introduced him to this to this woman that she thinks was really cool called Melissa Gilbert. And then Bruce married Melissa Gilbert. And then they divorced uh, much later on. And Melissa Gilbert was Anna in season three of uh, B5. And I just, uh, it is such a small world, huh? Because we've had several of these happen over the course of the show where it's like, this actor is married to this person's previous spouse or this actor is married to this person's child. And so they're like son-in-law or daughter-in-law and all of this. And of course, these actors don't have any time together in the episode, but it was just an amusing little thing that is that is in in real life like they're still married ian uh and um i i can't remember i think she's hannah um they're still together as far as i can tell and i watched an interview with him a few years back where he was discussing it his family's been involved in the entertainment industry his sister his mother was a small time tv actor did a few episodes of things here and there uncle as well i think but the most important role i've been saving this for last Oh, I, I have one more thing if you want to save that for the very last. Yes, please. He just, this is like from 2012 because like, he has a website, hasn't been updated over a decade, I think. 
Um, but he had linked like a written interview that he did, and I just found this quote really sweet. But um, he's talking about like what it was like to be a really popular celebrity, and he's like, I remember those days well, and I also remember the inconvenience of how and how nice anonymity is. So he's just like, I'm glad I'm not famous anymore. I'm glad I'm not famous. It was inconvenient. I get to just take my grandkids to the zoo now. Nobody notices me. I'm just an old man. And I was just like, that's so sweet. So one of my favorite shows growing up, and this is one of my favorite episodes from the show growing up, was Ripping Yarns. Now, Blake, are you familiar with Ripping Yarns by any chance? Are you Have you heard of this I have not. at all? So after the Monty Python group separated, went their own ways, they all went on individual projects. We all we saw John Cleese do Faulty Towers, but uh, Palin and Jones went on to do Ripping Yarns, which was this anthology series. Every episode was their own thing, but it was in the style of like short stories you would have read in a hardcover book in like 1910, in which the the cover of the book is like this illustration of a of a hunter or something. And so you would get stories like uh, these prisoners of war in this uh, in this camp are trying to escape, but it's silly. It's got that absurdist British humor. But the first episode is called Tompkinson's School Days, in which it's about a boys like a old boys school, but of course all the boys are played by full grow full full adult men, like grown men. And you have Palin, who always had the baby face of the group being the lead guy. But the joke is, it's like this all like old boys British boarding school, and instead of the school captain. They have the school bully, like that's their official title. It's an official role you get given is school bully. And the role of the school bully is played by Ian. And Ian plays Grayson, the school bully, which is one of my favorite comedic characters in any television show ever. He is fucking fantastic. Ripping Yarns is currently on YouTube. It's not the greatest of quality, but it's the first episode. Have a good time watching it, Blake. It's fantastic. But that first episode, Grayson comes in and he's wearing a top hat and the full suit and he puts in a monocle in his eye as he kicks someone and he has this glorious voice, which we hear from Ian in this. And he just has some of the best lines and he's a piece of shit and I love him so much. Like He's a school bully, but he's got an opium den and whores and it's just all of these great things and... I've always loved that character, but I did not realize until today that Lord Jarno, one of the characters that I've also kept an eye on in my in my memory, is the same actor. Like it's the same guy because he's younger, he doesn't have the beard, he's more blonde-haired as Grace and the school bully. But once you know it and you see it and you hear the voice, it's like, of course it is, of course it is. But that is it. Ripping Yarns, one of my favorite shows, and he plays Honestly, one of the most memorable characters in the entire run, and it's just such a, such a, I, I, this is why I do the spotlight, because once in a while, you'll find out, oh, that actor that I've seen in B5 a million times was in this thing that I also loved, and I didn't make the connections there. Are you going anywhere, Bully? Yes, I've been offered a job at Eaton. At Eaton? <laughs> yes, Eaton, you have heard of it, haven't you, silly little headmaster? Yes, <laughs> of course, Bully, you see, their school bullies left to join the government. And uh, they've offered me the job. It's a thousand pounds a year, meals sent up from London, a house in France during prep, 
And insurance cover on all boys damaged. I think it's very good. Look, yeah. you, can't just, you can't just leave like this, you know. I mean, parents send their boys to Greenbridge just to be bullied by you. Oh, I'm afraid that's your problem, you scruffy little creature. Well, look, 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 let's not be hasty about this. Let's think about it. I mean, Greenbridge has got a good name for bullying. We have our rating system of yum being bad and yum yum being good. And in the Kingdom of the Blind had a lot of good stuff but a lot of stuff also that you weren't a fan of. So I'm really on the edge of my seat wanting to know where you're going to land. Are you going to give this a yum or a yum yum? I would actually overall give this one a yum yum. Yum yum. For me, the the Centauri storyline and the where it's advancing that piece of it and where we're going, you know, post-Shadow War with both the Alliance as well as the Centauri and what's going on behind the scenes there... And, you know, it's ultimately going to set up, there's going to be this scene a few episodes in the council chamber once everyone learns that it is the Centauri behind the attacks. And you basically get this pissed off Sheridan where he throws everything across the room and does this, you know, damn everybody for agreeing to this. But this, to me, starts to set that up. So for that part of it, I really do like this episode and where it helps set the story up to go next. I give this a yum yum. Yum yum. I, I, I think this is the best episode of the fifth season we've watched thus far. The tone atmosphere is just pitch perfect. And I may not be in the majority here, but like I do think that the Byron stuff is handled really well in the episode with still some annoyances. I mean, it's Byron. The character himself I find aggravating, but I I don't oppose the way that the story is now being uh, put forth. And of course, the regent is back and there's creepy Centauri stuff and we see a druck in the shadows and it strangles the re- It's All of that stuff is just fantastic. But the most important thing is what Blake was going with, which is it, it is laying down the tracks for a story that I find to be the real meat of season five. Rachel, yum or yum yum? Yum yum. Yum yum. I really, really like this episode. And it says a lot, like, I know that it doesn't sound like overwhelming praise when I said I don't hate the Byron stuff, but... For those of you who have listened, you know how much I dislike Byron. Uh, And I am not the most extreme hater of him. I know that. I know that there are people further down that line than me. But the fact that it brings it up enough to say that I don't hate it (laughs) is a great sign for this episode. And the Centauri stuff is just wonderful. I need to hear from our guest what we will be talking about next time on Babylon 5. On an all-new Babylon 5. You've got episode 10, A Tragedy of Telepaths. Rebel telepaths hold up in Brown Sector use mind power to resist station security personnel. But for some telepaths, the resolve for nonviolence is starting to crack. No, I don't want that. What's lacking in that description is, and Lockley does some exercise routines on a glass table. Unsettling, unsettling. (laughs) And also confirmed canon, Lockley, she's the type of person who sleeps just in in her underwear. She, She don't wear pants. That's confirmed. 
That's confirmed. She doesn't have the she doesn't have the time matching outfits like Ivanova or Talia. No, no, she's just a she's just a singlet and a, and a undies person. Good for her. Good for her. Uh, well, Blake, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have another voice from Gray Seventeen podcast. I've had the pleasure of coming on the show a couple of times, and hopefully we can get Rachel on. It's all been about scheduling stuff. You guys record on days where Rachel's away and I'm here, and I'm like, we will figure it out. Rachel, you will be on for an episode at some point that isn't a a hopefully bad one, because Rachel, when you guest on other B5 podcasts, it's like, hey, do you want to do bad episodes? And it's like, I guess. I don't mind. I don't mind too much. Did you hear the the resolve in her voice? (laughs) I hear that, and, and you know, frankly, when we invite you on, is when you know we get Scott off the island, and we we need someone to fill in. Very true, and everyone, check out Gray Seventeen podcast. You guys are on various social medias, as well as you've got a YouTube page that does quite well, mm-hmm. and you're on all of the podcatching sites available. It seems. Uh, yeah, you guys release weekly, and as we record this, you're nearing the end of season three. So that is a very exciting time. And yeah, with your format, you have the new people who are just having their minds explode every episode, unless they have episodes where they say, I I, I didn't hate it. <laughs> we can be found on social media as well under Yum Yum Pod or Yum Yum Podcast. We post there regularly. You can see us chatting along with our fellow B5 podcasting friends. Uh, if you want to contact us more directly, you can email us over at yumyumpod at gmail.com. We have a Patreon. Hey, you guys have a Patreon too, right? We do. Well, both of us have Patreon, so if you are really wanting to support your Babylon 5 podcasters, make sure to go over to Patreon and check out Grey17 or check out Yum Yum Pod. On our side of things, we post a lot of extra bonus content on there, as well as we have a group Discord channel that you get to be a part of, or group that you get to be a part of. We shoot the shit, have some fun, we share some memes around. Uh, At the moment, we are watching through on our Patreon, we're watching through The Expanse for the first ever time. We have never seen the show before, and it's going very, very well and interestingly. And people are having a grand old time sharing some jokes about things going in directions that we didn't expect when we started it up. So if that is all up your alley, then go to the description of the episode. All of this is included below. Uh, Blake, we talk about the brilliance of JMS's writing, the consistency, the continuity of it, but answer me this. Why does Jakar not exit his scenes by thumping his chest and say, and saying good eating to you, like he did in The Gathering. That was a perfect farewell. Why did JMS drop that, do you think? I have, you know, that that could be an interesting ending for him to leave several scenes with, but I think JMS maybe figured that might not work for everything. It would work well in his death scene when he's getting choked out, his last lines are, good eating to you, <laughs> and then he looks at the camera and winks. With with the with the eye patch eye, of course. He has the eye patch, it's it's fallen off, and he gives us his his hollow eye and he gives us a wink. Rachel, good eating to you, wink. Good eating to you. Wink. 
No, just confused look. Confused squint. Ah, Mr. Kettleborn! 